MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club, Episode 4. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. And... Today, we are covering chapters six and seven of The Reckoning. I hope you've been enjoying it so far. And as we know, this, uh, the, the subtitle is Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. And it is by our dear friend, Mary Trump. Yes, that's right. Today, pages 101 to 140. Um, and Dana, last week, we discussed chapters four and five, which were called Abandon All Hope, Ye Who Enter Here, and uh, chapter five, Suffering in Silence. Chapter five ended with the question, how many traumatized by violence and the glorification of white supremacy grew up permanently damaged which uh leads us into chapter six which begins with the premise that there is no truth to the myth of white supremacy and we're going to dig into the myth of white supremacy in this chapter that's right and mary digs into understanding how one might conclude that white supremacy is a uniquely american problem and how the puritans brought over their calvinistic brand of reformation to the northeast and now that Calvin's insistence that anything not aligned with biblical teachings crossed over into fanaticism. Mary says that it was perhaps the belief that only a few were chosen and the rest were condemned to damnation. And that might explain our American myth of rugged individualism. Mm, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I didn't realize how heavily um, Calvinism played into to the birth of white supremacy, but it was like just, you know, in the Anglo DNA so far before we even got here. And she writes the wealth of was a sign. If you had a bunch of wealth, it, God loved you. you. You had God's mercy. And the poor were obviously God didn't like you. So you were damned, you know, and it marked as damned. And it was through that lens that slavery became this self-fulfilling prophecy of black inferiority, right? That's the lens that that's came with. And it was their destiny to be slaves, which justified not only the slavery, but also the genocide of indigenous people. And that justification led to the wholesale slaughter of Native Americans. There were 7 million of when we got here, only 225,000 left by the 20th century. And, and Mary then reveals the cycle of violence that is propped up by the myth of white supremacy. It begins with white people fearing black autonomy and freedom because they'll take away our power which leads to black people protecting themselves, rebellions, mm -hmm. which leads white people to claim, see, it's them, see, they're violent, we told you. Yep. And that starts the cycle all over again, fearing black autonomy. And in order to murder Native Americans and enslave black people, whites had to racialize the groups is what they did and then unite across class lines amongst themselves, which they achieved by bribing white laborers, which would strengthen white racial identity so everyone would remain committed to the common cause. And from that, white identity played a bigger and bigger role in society, so much so 
that we passed the uh, Naturalization Act of, of 1790, excuse me, 1790, which restricted immigration to free white persons. Yeah, that's the only people who could immigrate at that. Exactly. In 1790, there was actually a law about it. And it's what, I mean, Trump was trying to do that here by doing the meritocracy based. Um, mm -hmm. shutting down Muslim ban. Mary, I'll get into that in a second. But 175 years after the Naturalization Act, uh, race, religion, and nationality were finally removed as criteria for immigration. But that all came back, like I said, in 2017 with the Muslim ban, right? And and we should note here that Mary wants to make, make, make something clear from uh, last week's episode, post 9-11 treatment of Muslims. Let me just bring up, if you give me a second, Dana, I want to bring up this tweet that she sent us because I, I wanted to take a second to cl to clarify uh, what she had said. I think this was actually a text that she sent to the both of us in a, mm -hmm. in a personal exchange. Yeah. Yeah. And she just wanted to say, um, you know, that uh, when she talks about unity after September 11th, she was literally only referring to September 12th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> things went to hell uh, at first with the anti-Muslim violence and then with the war pretty quickly after that. Um, it was just that one day of unity, that paltry amount of time. Uh, even that paltry amount of time, she says, seems impossible now. So I just I felt like we should uh, sort of clarify that. A hundred percent. And I had no doubt that she would hold those same thoughts about 9-11. But I know, I'm glad that we actually have her words to be able to explain it. Um, instead of, you know, pontificating on her own. Um, then we go into page 105. Mary says here that being black continued to be a barrier to entry into white society throughout the 20th century. So as an example of this, when unions were created after the Depression, there was no anti-discrimination amendment to the legislation because the AFL and the CIO didn't want it. So only white people enjoyed union jobs. So that's one big start. Now, another example Black people were left out of the GI Bill. This is a big deal. That provided education, government jobs, mortgages to white men who served in World War II. And Mary posits that impact of that as far as widening the gap between white and black wealth is likely immeasurable. Yeah, I can't. I can't. It is. It's to, it's wholly and totally immeasurable. And besides, besides the Calvinism, right, another tool used to justify the myth of white supremacy is social Darwinism, you know, which quote, I'm going to quote from the book here, the inane theory uh, that attempted to co-opt Darwin's theory of evolution in an effort to demonstrate that the racial and social hierarchies were determined by survival of the fittest. In other words, if you were poor, you deserve to be. If you were rich, you deserve to be. Kind of like Calvinism, Dana, isn't it? In that if, if you were wealthy, God showed you mercy. If you were poor, that means you were left behind by God. He doesn't like you. That means you are probably damned to right. eternal hell. Same thing with social Darwinism. It's the survival of the fittest. If you're rich, you deserve to be rich. If you're poor, you deserve to be poor. It sort of tramples over the entire concept of privilege. Yeah, absolutely. And she actually introduces something here that I never even considered. There's basically, this is when the development of IQ tests, in which Mary says, isn't inherently racist, but when eugenicist H.H. Goddard introduced it to America, his goal was to skew the test to prove white superiority. So the American test was biased toward white culture. And Brigham, who developed the SAT test, uh, he concluded that IQ tests had proven and this is a quote, American Negroes, Italians, and Jews were genetically ineducable. 
So this continued, it would be a waste of good money even to attempt to try to give these born morons, this is a quote, remember, these born morons and imbeciles a good Anglo-Saxon education. Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, that's hard to get through that quote. And Mary's a lot of of quotes in here um, that that are just they're hard to read, you know? Yeah. And just to, just a clarification, that was not a quote from Mary. That is a quote from Carl Brigham. Yeah. Who developed SAT. Yes. Yeah. Who he's the one who concluded IQ tests. He, he was all about, um, HH Goddard bringing in this, you know, skewed IQ test to prove white superiority. It's one of the thousands and thousands of ways people are trying to maintain white supremacy. Uh, and many eugenicists were, were pro-IQ test, Dana. Eugenics is basically the selective breeding for positive traits, mm-hmm. right, Gattaca? And American eugenics was about eliminating negative traits by keeping out, quote-unquote, the inferior. And and this was supported by the likes of Alexander Graham Bell and Woodrow Wilson. And, and that, Dana, is most definitely something they did not teach us in school. Oh, my God. Uh, absolutely not. And the eugenics movement, so this... This movement, it, it gets more a little more horrifying here. This led to the sterilization laws, where the, quote, unfit would be committed, sterilized, and then let back into society. So Mary quotes an article in The New Yorker from 2016 by Andrea Denhode, who compared it to feral cats spaying and neutering programs. Hitler even made reference to the California's eugenics program where at least 20,000 people were sterilized between 1907 and 1979. And the American South was the gold standard for race-based legislation, so much so that Germany referenced it when it was drafting the Nuremberg Laws. Jesus. Yeah. Boy, I, 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 now, now, again, California history that we don't, we aren't taught in school, right? Mm -hmm. To bottom of page 109, Mary goes back to the Constitution now, noting that when it was written, white supremacy, as we've talked about, was already woven into the DNA of the colonists, from the colonists on, even though... The terms white, black, slave, and slavery didn't appear in the Constitution. The so-called northern liberals didn't know how to abolish slavery. Like, they wanted to, like, they wanted to abolish slavery, but they didn't want to give black people autonomy. They didn't want to lose their political power, so they deferred to the southern states. That's the equivalent of, you know, si- you know standing by and doing nothing. Right. And that left the judiciary and legislative branches to do a lot of the heavy lifting to make the Constitution democratic. And Mary actually comes in here and says that it's worth looking at how SCOTUS fared at the task of deciding which laws would stand and basically concludes that SCOTUS is one of the most anti-democratic forces in American history. I would have to agree. She says that the string of anti-democratic started with the 1857 Dred Scott decision in which SCOTUS determined that black people were never intended to be included as citizens under the Constitution, a decision that would bring the U.S. closer to civil war during that time. Yeah, and then there was a string of decisions after that that undermine any advances, feeble as they were, made during Reconstruction. Between 1865 and 1876, they struck down 13 congressional acts as unconstitutional. That's when the 12th, 13th, 14th Amendment uh, all got added. Uh, Excuse me, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment all got added. So between that short time, 1865 and 76, 13 congressional acts struck down by SCOTUS as unconstitutional. Up until then, from the beginning of history to 1865, they had only done it twice. Mm-hmm. And some of those decisions included U.S. versus Cruikshank, which undermined the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, 
Plessy Ferguson. Plessy had been charged with riding a whites-only train car uh, and lost. Uh, and then Giles v. Harris, in which Giles was prohibited from voting because of regressive changes to voting rights in Alabama's new constitution, right? One of the whole reasons we had the Voting Rights Act that was just recently gutted was for these ra- racist right. constitutions. Uh, then Mary brings up Milliken versus Bradley, where plaintiffs argued that school segregation was unconstitutional and SCOTUS ruled against them. That was in 1974. And now Biden has formed a commission on court reform. But Justice Breyer has said recently that we should look long and hard before trying to expand the court, even though there's nothing in the Constitution that says it can't be done. Now, Aaron Belkin, director of Take Back the Court, said in response to Biden's Biden's court's reformed commission, this is a quote, there's a growing recognition that the Supreme Court poses a danger to the health and well-being of the nation and even to democracy itself. That is a lot to be said about SCOTUS. Yeah, here, here. And and Mary ends this chapter. She's <laughs> ne- you can't ever slip a piece of irony past Mary Trump. So no. She, <laughs> she notes the irony that the institution created to rule objectively has become so partisan that it's no longer worthy of our trust, right? There was recent polling ca- that came out after the book came out. 40% approval rating, lowest in the history in the history of the Supreme Court. And then this week, we've got Alito coming out making speeches. We have Amy Coney Barrett uh, last week uh, objecting to why everybody's pissed off about the abortion law, you know, gutting Roe v. Wade by not taking any action on SB8. That's that that complicity by by not acting. Um, and, and, and that is also a model of white supremacy in this country, because who is it that is impacted by no access to abortions the most, you know? Mm-hmm. So that sort of brings us to the end uh, of the chapter and part four of the book. And this part is called The Reckoning. And chapter seven is the first chapter in, in part four. It starts on page 121. It's called The Precipice. So we'll be right back to cover chapter seven after this quick break. Um, if you want these episodes ad-free, as well as ad-free episodes of Muller She Wrote and the Beans, head to patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote for more information. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's AG for the MSW Book Club. This episode, covering Mary Trump's book, The Reckoning, is brought to you by Nutrafol. Since I've gotten older and started heading into the uh, exciting land of menopause, my hair just hasn't been growing in as thick as it used to, and it doesn't grow as fast either. In fact, 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. If you're among them, know you're not alone and that there's a solution you can trust to deliver results. That is why I love and found Nutrafol. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol, with many users raving that the supplement not only transformed their hair, but restored their confidence too. And just like the wheels of justice, healthier hair growth takes time. <laughs> so you're gonna, it's gonna take a minute. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster growing hair in three to six months. Uh, but no matter the stage in your life, Nutrafol has a solution. Nutrafol Women is ideal if you're experiencing thinning hair caused by stress, dieting, overstyling, and environmental toxins, while Women's Balance is formulated with additional hormone support for those with thinning hair through menopause. I feel seen. <laughs> you can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the program promo code Mary to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available in the U.S. to customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. So get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, and use promo code Mary. You'll be glad you did. 
All right, everybody, welcome back. Okay, Dana, let's get into Chapter 7, The Precipice. Okay, so Chapter 7 opens up with what should have been the end of a nightmare. Uh, It opens with Biden's inauguration. Uh. Now, I remember that day. I felt hopeful. I was, well, uh, relieved. Mm. I mean, there, it was beautiful. The, the whole production was so gorgeous. I just, I felt like that one day we had happiness again. And I wasn't hearing about the former guy. Mm-hmm. The Amanda Gorman poem, Lady oh. Gaga in that dress. and Katy Perry. Katy Perry. It was just so... What an amazing day. And it was my birthday, so I had extra, extra double awesomeness. And just... And and kind of Dana after we had worked so hard to make it happen, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was important and it was an important day and I think Mary talks about that, yeah, and you know as though and that should have been the end of the nightmare. Ag, we knew that it wasn't just about getting you know the former guy out of office. It wasn't just about that or even about getting the Senate back, which we had done what, fifteen days before the inauguration. It wasn't about any of that. Yeah, that's right. And Mary writes that we, but we needed that hope, right? We needed that For day. sure. We needed the inauguration to be held in front of the Capitol, given the violent armed attack just two weeks before. Yes, armed. <laughs> uh, and and as Mary recounts here at the beginning of this chapter, we dodged a bullet. And And as time goes on, after the book came out, we've been learning just how close we came to losing the Republic from new body cam footage that's being released in the January 6th insurrection investigations uh, to inquiries about the insurrection act that Donald was making to the Pentagon. Now Mm -hmm. the call to former acting AG Jeffrey Rosen that Donahue took notes on pushing the department of justice to just say the election was corrupt and let him and his Republican buddies take it, take it from there. But especially these letters penned by Jeffrey Clark to swing States actually declaring the election was corrupt and to have an alternate slate of electors on standby. Yeah. And then we got the John Eastman six point plan, right, for how Pence could throw the election to Trump by shit canning those seven states electors and sending the new ones Jeffrey Clark tried to ask for, which was absurd. And it was so tenuous and had Rosen actually resigned and Clark had been made a G, we would have crossed into that line. We absolutely would have crossed that line. But given Mm -hmm. that we came so close to losing democracy, elections don't fix everything. And we're still staring down this barrel, so to speak. But Mary points out that we have a unique opportunity. We have a unique opportunity to make this country better for everyone, not just the privileged majority. Yeah, like when it all comes crumbling down and you're at, at rock bottom, you have the best chance to, to change. To yeah. Ch- and, and yeah, and I think that's the whole build back better thing, right? Like not just how it was. It, we don't want it how it was. No. And that's the precipice that the chapter's named after, right? We're at the precipice. We have a reckoning. We can do, we've had an opportunity. We had an opportunity after the Civil War during Reconstruction. We failed. We had an opportunity after World War II. We blew it. 9-11 blew it. In 2020, Donald gave Republicans a zillion off-ramps that they never took, right? The call to Zelensky, COVID, the insurrection, Still, the GOP stuck by him, largely. And then I I love this. Mary addresses language uh, and that we can't shy away from language or shying away. We can't shy away from calling Republicans fascists. Not all, right? I guess like Liz Cheney. Yeah, not all Republicans. Kinsinger. (laughs) Hashtag hashtag not not all all Republicans. Republicans. (laughs) But she says, what else do you call it when a mob of white men shouts Jews will not replace us in service of protecting a statute of Robert E. Lee? 
how else do you describe, she says, a party that doesn't just tolerate but supports putting children in concentration camps? How do you explain suppressing dissent during peaceful Black Lives Matter protests with seemingly unidentified paramilitaries or dismantling the truth or distrusting reality, designating uh, the free press and whistleblowers as enemies of the people? She goes on and on here with succinct examples and then closes with, if anyone thinks calling them fascists is rude, we have a serious problem. Totally. I have no I have no problem with that. Um, and like you said a minute ago, Mary says the real damage was done when Senate Republicans let him off the hook for first impeachment. They let him. What, what did Susan Collins say? I think he learned his lesson. Yeah. Well, he learned yeah. his lesson. Mm. That, that, that sort of stuff that ultimately led him to be able to run for office again. And probably worst of all, 74 million people got the chance to express support for him with their votes. That was horrifying. That emboldened him and the big lie, which Mary talks about in detail here, and how it gave rise to Republican state legislatures to pass voter suppression laws. This is what all of this was leading to. Yeah, and, and this is an interesting question here. Mary wonders why Donald didn't claim double jeopardy during his second impeachment trial. Mm-hmm. Because you've heard me talk about this on the beans and, well, you know, when I'm trying to tell people that I think Merrick Garland is investigating the leaders of the insurrection and the plot to overthrow the government, you can't uncouple the boots on the ground January 6th from the big lie. Right. And and that's so she's like, why didn't he do double jeopardy? I mean, <laughs> this is all one big scheme to steal the election. The call to Zelensky was about Biden. Mm hmm. Uh, and, and so then I, I don't know if double jeopardy applies to um, to impeachment, but it's such a good question. Like that would have been such a good, like at least a reasonable defense. Um, but anyway, the, the election gave him a boost. Seventy four million people voting for him gave him a boost. The acquittals in both of his impeachment impeachment trials gave him a boost. Uh, the insurrection gave him a boost. Then the party just went along with it, right? Mary brings up Donald's Republican buddies in Congress, including Hawley, who announced his decision to commit sedition in December of 2020 <laughs> yeah. when he said he wouldn't vote to certify the election results when some states refused to follow their own election laws, which was a total lie. And many Republicans were grifting off the big lie, making money, keeping it and their fealty to him alive. Yes, and on page 131, so Mary talks again about Protestantism. And while it's clear that white is the default for America. Protestantism is implied in our whiteness, meaning that the real Americans aren't just white, but Protestant. That's a distinction here. Many of Donald's appointees had a weird religious ideology like Pompeo or Barr. Now that weird vision of like Gilead is the engine of the Republican Party's trend toward fascism. Yeah, Christo-fascism, right? And Mary comes back to those 74 million people who voted for Donald, also known as the base, and she writes, on one end, we have the actual Christo-fascists, unreconstructed white supremacists, like the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, right? And then on the other end, low-info, knee-jerk voters. And then Mary says, somewhere in between are the I've-got-mine Republicans, who are made uncomfortable by diversity, right? And Fox News stokes these fears and xenophobia in these groups, who all have a false belief of a glorious past, make America great again, America's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So they have that false belief and that myth. And then they also have the benefits of being white. And it's all of those were basically represented at the insurrection. Yeah, yeah, they were all there, right? I mean, from, from the zip tie guy, paramilitary stacks marching up the Capitol 100%. steps to like 
you know, Marjorie, your dental hygienist who just loves Trump's <laughs> mushroom dick. I don't, you know, it's just like <laughs> such, a, such a weird spectrum. But I'm reminded here with regards to Mary's discussion about who's in their base and her description of why we shouldn't shy away from calling them fascists a little bit earlier. I'm reminded of a, a study that came out about the people at the insurrection. And Mary was right. It found out that most of them were white men, 35 to 45, from blue areas who were afraid of what's called the Great Replacement. That is so interesting. So this concept that Democrats are trying to replace white people, that's basically what it is. It's this concept that Democrats, Democrats are trying to replace white people. It's why they keep harping on the open border thing. It's a, a prelude to full-on replacement theory. That's what it is. It's a prelude to full-on replacement theory, which, as Mary points out here, is being fed to Fox News viewers by the likes of Hannity and Tucker, on a daily basis. Yeah. And she points out here that, when we all know this, Donald hates the people in his base. <laughs> she says he would have dead with them. He wouldn't touch them. He wouldn't want to be in the same room with them. She says it's actually a method of control, slowly accrued through microaggressions, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And this is just a brilliant concept. Uh, remember when he continually abandoned them at rallies in, in the freezing uh -huh. cold yep. or in extremely hot weather, any inclement weather? That sets them up to build up to risking their lives for their dear leader Ugh. by attending super spreader rallies in 2020 when we didn't have vaccines. Which takes us to the middle of page 136, A.G. Mary talks about Mitch. Mm. Now, the architect of the damage... This is what she calls him, and she compares him to Robert E. Lee as one of the greatest traitors to the country, except Mitch is trying to take it down from within. Now, she, she quotes Robert uh, Schlesinger here in his piece for NBC saying, Mitch is, this is a quote, is the living, breathing, calculating face of everything that is wrong with our current politics. To the extent to which our system has become dysfunctional, McConnell is the single chief architect of that sclerosis. Donald Trump is a dangerous, blundering wrecking ball, but McConnell was undermining the system well before and is likely to outlast him. And that has been made very clear. Oh, yeah. And, and she also reminds us here that the minority in the government is still wielding power over the majority that we elected. And she brings up Manchin, who is at this very moment probably successfully shaving $2 trillion off Biden's budget reconciliation yeah. plan. <laughs> And his unwillingness to do away with the racist filibuster. And she says here, fucking listen to this, dude. <laughs> she says that kind of thing allows Manchin, the filibuster allows Manchin to, quote, essentially hold President Biden's entire agenda hostage, which he yeah. is doing right now as we speak. If you're listening to this well into the future, it is Friday, October 1st, and the Senate and the Congress are, are negotiating right now. Uh, Biden's two infrastructure bills, one budget reconciliation and one bipartisan infrastructure bill. And we're, we've been at 3.5 trillion for months. And all of a sudden today, Joe Manchin's nine, 1.5 trillion is better for me. Yeah. And then cinema fucking left and went back to Arizona for a doctor's appointment in a fundraiser. Yeah. Fundraiser. Yeah. A fundraiser. <laughs> I think she scheduled, I, I think she scheduled a doctor's appointment. Like additionally so that just could, so it looks right oh i have oh yeah i have, I I have, have check on that ankle i keep breaking i have no <laughs> idea what she's doing mary wraps up the chapter noting that it wasn't just donald but those that he appointed who aren't as incompetent as he is 
that built a, quote, lean and ruthless machine for advancing fascism. And that is, we've known that. Donald's not smart. It's the people around him that are smarter than he is and dangerous. Yeah, that's frightening. It's frightening, Dana. Um, so we're going to continue uh, on with uh, episode five next week. It'll be short. It'll be very short. One chapter. We might hear, be here for like 10 minutes. <laughs> That's how we have, we, we, we have to do something at the end of these episodes. Cause they're so intense and so dark, like give a, you know, a mixed drink recipe or something. At the end. <laughs> we should get a sponsor from like a vodka company, which is one of Mary's favorites, you know, choices and just like blow it out and be like, this is how you make a cosmopolitan. <laughs> <laughs> now enjoy it quickly oh goodness thank you for hanging in with us this is so important stuff we know it's heavy but together we're getting through it and um hopefully it's you know more palatable when you when you know you're listening with the family yeah yeah and and again next week's gonna be a relatively short episode chapter eight we're covering next week's called the long shadow episode six will be the rest of the book and then episode seven Mary will join us to answer patron questions. So if you have a question, that, that form is link is available on our Patreon page. And if you're not a patron, it's three bucks a month, bro. It's 36 bucks a year. Make it real. Live your dream. Uh, you can do it Live at your pa dream. Patreon.com slash Miller She Wrote or Supercast as well. We also uh, have Supercasters. All right. That's it. That's the episode. Do you have any uh, final thoughts before we get out of here? No final thoughts. Just do something nice for yourself. It's the end of the weekend. We're going to get started with another Monday. It's October. Get something pumpkin-y if it makes you happy. I don't know. Just find some joy in your day. <laughs> Just find some joy in your day. Find some fucking joy in your day, people. <laughs> Enjoy the day, Jobin. All right, I'm going to go take a Claritin or something. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, I hope it gets better up to everyone. Until next week, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>